word, which will be Colossians chapter 1. Today we will look at one verse, verse 20, Colossians chapter 1. One verse this afternoon, verse 20. Colossians 1, verse 20, says this, And through Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Last time we were together in Colossians, we considered the grace that Christ received as man in order for us to be saved. In order to be saved. And what the basic argument was is that the fullness of grace was given to the man, Jesus Christ, Christ as man, so that he can merit our salvation. Now, today, saints, we're going to look at two things. Number one, the way of reconciliation. And number two, the extent of reconciliation. Because in verse 20, Paul is speaking of this one who has saved us. How does he save us? And how far wide does his saving work go? He saves us how? But also, how far wide does his saving work go? Let's consider the first point. That is the way of reconciliation. Again, our text says, And through him... To reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The great question of all question is not, why is there something rather than nothing? That's what a teacher in philosophy and a, in a freshman year's uh, class uh, will say. The question or rather, the great question of all questions is not, is there a God? That is not the greatest question of all questions. But rather, saints, the great question of all questions that old people, young people need to answer is this. How can sinful man be reconciled to God? That is the great question of all questions. How can sinful man have peace with God? How can man ever find peace with God? How can man ever be united back to God? How can a relationship that once was fruitful, now broken, be brought back together? The answer is given to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. St. Paul says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. The answer to the great question of all questions, saints, is found in God's Word. How can creation ever be reconciled to God? It's only found in Jesus Christ. That is the only way sinful man and holy God can unite once again. It's found in the person and work, and as Paul says here, in the blood of Jesus Christ. It is congregation, Jesus Christ, 
who is the only way that one can find peace with God. It is Jesus Christ who has bridged the gap. He has made the way. He has built the ladder for man to ascend to God. Only Jesus Christ. And saints, don't let no one ever tell you any different. Only Jesus Christ. But how? How did Jesus Christ make this way? How is peace between two parties brought together? The answer that Paul gives. The blood. The answer that Paul gives is how is peace made? He says the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the answer. The answer, saints, is found on the cross. And that one hanging on the cross that answer is found on Golgotha's hill. The one who they, who they speared on his side. Where the only innocent man who's ever lived was put to death. And saints of God, when we think of the death of Christ, it's not just any death. Not just, it's not a death where, where minimal outward suffering would happen. That's the type of death of one uh, who would hang themselves. A minimal outward suffering. It's not a death where one dies instantly. Those are the deaths that we reserve for those who will die of lethal injection. No, not those type of deaths, saints. But a death where blood was shed. A death where blood was running down the cross. A blood, a death where everyone outwardly saw saints suffering in death by way of the cross was the only way or rather, was the way man has peace with God. Now, one simple question you might ask is this. Was there another way? Have you ever asked that question before? Was the only way for man to be reconciled to God only death? Could there be another way? In other words, was it possible for God to have chosen another way to redeem mankind? Why can't have when Adam fell, the moment Adam fell, not just for Adam when, when God clothed him, but also for the rest of mankind. Why couldn't that be the way in which we are reconciled? <clears throat> Thomas Aquinas. He says, a thing may be said to be possible or impossible in two ways. Therefore, simply speaking, and absolutely, it was possible for God to deliver mankind otherwise than by the passion of Christ. In other words, saints, sure, in the infinite mind of God, there is an infinite amount of ways man could be reconciled to God. Sure. God could have done it in any other way. No doubt about that. But then he says, yet it was impossible for some supposition to be made. For since it was impossible for God's foreknowledge to be deceived and his will or ordinance to be frustrated, then supposing God's foreknowledge ordinance according to Christ's passion, it was not possible at the same time for Christ not to suffer. In other words, it was, yes, possible by way of the infinite plan of God. He could have done it any other way. But with respect to the divine decree, with respect to the eternal plan, this was the only way. This was the only way. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In other words, congregation, this plan of redemption by way of Christ's sacrifice was not a new plan in the will of God. And I hope many of you know that. That when Adam fell in the garden, God didn't say in his head, okay, let me take a moment to myself and devise a plan of how I can undo what Adam did. Oh, I know, I'll send my son and he'll die. 
That's not what happened, saints. But rather, the moment Adam fell in the garden, the plan of redemption was already set. The moment Adam fell in the garden, the plan of redemption by way of a, of one who will come to die, suffer and die, was already set. The divine plan of Christ's cross was the plan of God from all eternity. Again, the divine plan of Christ's cross was the plan of God for all eternity. That humanity, by way of a sinless one, will shed his blood for his people was the only way man was to be redeemed. And saints, let me say this, that this was the perfect plan of God. When we get into hypotheticals of, could have God done another way? We can run the risk of undermining the way in which God did it. To say that, yes, that's good, but could there have been... No, no, no. God is perfect. All his plans are perfect. Therefore, his eternal son coming, living, dying, rising, ascending, and coming back for us is the perfect plan of God. It's the perfect plan of God. It's not option B, not option C. It's option A. And it's perfect. Oh, it's perfect, saints. This peace and fellowship we brought about by way of Christ's life and Christ's blood St. Paul says in Ephesians 2, remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, after all the things that you, that you were not and you could not enjoy, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. You were strangers. You had no promises to you. Having no hope. And he says, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Blood, saints, is very interesting, is it not? Blood has the power to link together two family members who are distant from each other. In fighting, two fighters are forever linked, they say, for they spilled and shared blood together. Blood is weird, is it not? But John Eadie says, blood shed on earth creates feuds by, to, to be extinguished only by other blood. When blood is shed, what do the great conquerors say? Well, let's go shed more blood. It calls up the avenging kinsmen to wait, watch, pursue, and retaliate. But the blood of Christ, but the blood of Christ's violent and vicarious death brings peace. Restores alliance between heaven and earth. Saints of God, what John Eady is saying is blood is very different than how we think of blood with regard to bringing peace together. What he's saying is Christ's blood, as opposed to those conquerors throughout the ages of the year, Christ's blood restores and brings peace. That's the power of Christ's blood, saints. It has the power to bring two who are infinitely distant from one another, together. Again, two who were at at infinite distance together. And saints of God, that's how far sin caused us to distance ourselves from God. Not a few miles. We weren't just a few miles from God. We weren't just a few feet from God. We were at an infinite distance from God. And what brought reconciliation? What brought us to have peace with God? Not a phone call. It wasn't an email. 
It wasn't a lunch or a dinner or a sit down. That's how you and I, when we're at a feud with one another, that's how we make peace. No, 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 saints. The word of God says it costs the death of the only innocent one who has ever lived. It costs the life of someone. Jesus Christ, although he is God, he's also man. He actually really separated body and soul. He actually was in the grave for three days. Jesus Christ died for you. To bring you peace. To bring us peace. His death reconciled us to God and saints of God. That word reconciled, when you hear that word, it should bring you much joy. Oh, is not reconciled one of the greatest words God has ever given to man with relation to Christ's cross. What does reconciled mean? It means to restore friendship. And that's what Christ's cross does, does it not? It restores friendship. Christ's cross restores friendship. Jesus says in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. Oh, saints of God, this laying down of his life, you might say, was this the only way? Yes, because this was the greatest way God showed his love for us. Not just the son showing his love for us, for God so loved the world, not so hated the world. He loved the world that in this way, I'm going to show you how much I love you in this way. My only innocent begotten son, the one who is very God of very God, is going to die on your behalf. The greatest act of love from God to man. John Davenant says he showed his mercy in acting not from us miserable creatures who are capable of incapable of paying it, but from Christ who could pay. In other words, God says, I'm not going to leave it up to you to pay for your own debt. Isn't that amazing? He says, I will not leave it up to you, miserable sinners, to pay for your own sin. But rather, saints, he says, I will send my son. And that is highly unusual, saints. I mean, God in his essence is highly unusual and all of his actings are highly unusual, is it not? This is highly unusual because when two are in dispute, it's typical that the offender goes to the one who's offended and tries to make reconciliation. So if you came up to me, and you hit me, and that hurt me, in order for us to make peace, I would think that you would come up to me and say sorry. Not me come up to you and say sorry. But saints of God, that's not what we see with God. This is not what we see with God. We have offended God. We are the ones who have, loosely speaking, slapped God in the face. We are the ones that have done that. We are the ones who have made ourselves distance from God. We are not the offended party. We are the ones who made the offense. But as Augustine says, speaking of God, you pay debts while owing nothing. Oh, isn't God pays off his own debt. The debt that we owe to him. He says, I will imagine the bank. Calling you and telling you, Capital One, you know what? <clears throat> you, you are, it's your lucky day today. I'm going to pay for that, for that debt that you owe. And on, on top of that, I'm going to add a positive balance to your account. This is what God does. God in His divine plan of redemption knew that we couldn't offer to Him what He rightly was owed. He knew that. So what does He do? He says, I'm going to send my son. 
You can't do it. I'll do it for you. You can't pay it. I will pay it for you and more. I will, I will give to you my only begotten son. And it's by his blood. We are not only healed of sin, but also we have peace with God. You want peace with God, saints? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Young people, you want peace with God? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. As we have seen, or rather this reconciliation, saints, is only found in the peace, or rather the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, to the fun stuff, which the first point was mildly fun. But when Paul thinks of reconciliation, he thinks of reconciliation in a cosmic way which is the extent of reconciliation. Again, our text says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What was asked you, how far does Christ's redemptive work reach? How far does it reach? If you, if Paul says, if you only think humans, you're thinking too small. If you only think that Christ died in order for humans to be saved and that's it, then you're thinking too small. You have a, you have a, you have a low view, a small view of Christ's redemptive work. The answer that St. Paul gives is not just humans that are affected by Christ's cross, but also the entire universe. Maybe this in, maybe when Antonio gets, Pastor Antonio gets to Revelation 21, well, the whole universe is affected. By this one dying on Golgotha's hill. The whole cosmos is affected by the death of Jesus Christ. Again, through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. As to say, Christ's merit touches not only us on earth, we'll get to that in the last point, but also touches those who are in heaven. Again, Christ's merit touches those who are in heaven. Meaning the things in heaven are somehow, some way, reconciled, affected by Christ's blood. <clears throat> How is this so? St. Paul echoes the same words here in Colossians 1.20 and Ephesians 1.10 as a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. So what effect is Christ's redemptive work for those who are in heaven. What effect is it having, saints? Well, the standard reform position is going to be this. That the grace of Christ causes those angels who could still fall, no longer fall. Christ's grace gives to the angels, and we're going to talk a little bit about angels right now, gives to them an immutable state. So like the, the elect angels that didn't fall, Right? With the unholy angels. The reforms say that they're, they're in a position where they could still fall. But because of what Christ has done, Christ gives to them grace so that they cannot fall. As one theologian says, grace and glory of the angels does not depend on the merits of Christ. Because the word was made flesh for men and for our salvation. For our salvation. So then what way does Christ's redemptive work benefit the angels? The answer is twofold. The answer is twofold. First, Christ in his humanity illumines the angels. Christ in his humanity illumines the angels. 
In other words, Christ as man communicates to the holy angels the mystery of his redemptive work. Again, Christ as man communicates to the holy angels the mystery of his work. 1 Peter 1.12 It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things in which angels long to look. In other words, saints, there is something about the, the mystery of redemption that the angels long to know. The angels long to know. As we know, Christ's human soul, by reason of its union with the word, is full of truth. Christ as man is full of truth. In other words, Christ as man, he knows better than the most exalted angels. The cherubim, seraphim, thrones. The deepest plans of God and thus is capable of revealing it to them. Now, Seodonysius says, speaking of Christ teaching the angels, others, as they puzzle over the nature of Jesus, acquire an understanding of his redemptive work on our behalf. And it is Jesus himself who is their instructor teaching them directly about the kindly work he has undertaken out of the love of man. And Thomas Aquinas says, Christ's soul is more filled with the truth of the word of God than any angel, for which reason he also enlightens the angels. Wait a minute. What I'm saying is Christ teaches angels. Christ as man teaches angels. Two questions that might arise. First, well, don't the angels know already about the incarnation? Don't the holy angels already know that? I mean, they are ministering spirits. They minister to Christ. They, they spoke the good word to Mary. Don't they already know about the incarnation? Thomas Aquinas says, all angels had some knowledge from the very beginning respecting the mystery of God's kingdom, which is found as completion as Christ. Yet, all the angels did not fully and adequate or equally apprehend it. For they fully and certainly known that he was the son of God and the effect of his passion, they would have not procured the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. In other words, angels knew of the substance of the incarnation, but they didn't know all the facts of the incarnation. They knew that God became man. They didn't know that God became man in order to die. They knew the substance of the incarnation, that God will become man. But all the facts all the suffering, all of what the life, the death, and resurrection of Christ entails for our salvation, they did not apprehend it. They did not apprehend it. <clears throat> so then they know the substance of the incarnation, but not all the facts of the incarnation. So then how does the holy angels' knowledge increase of Christ's saving work? The answer, because Christ teaches them. Because Christ teaches them. Consider Isaiah 63. It reads, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, the one who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine through alone. And from the peoples, there was no one with me. 
Here, and stay with this. Let me just say, when I, just, when I found this, when I found this, this was one of the greatest days of my life. This is point here is so insightful. Um, many of the church fathers interpreted Isaiah 63 as allegory, which meaning there's a deeper meaning behind what's being said. To speak of Christ ascending to heaven and teaching the angels. Again, the church fathers interpreted Isaiah 63 and what's being said as Christ, when he goes to heaven after the 40 days, he ascends to heaven. He then teaches the angels about his redemption. So what we have in Isaiah 63 is a conversation between the angels and Christ. The angels and Christ. According to the church fathers, at this ascension, at his ascension, Christ's work on earth was announced to the heavenly host upon arriving. Again, listen to the words of Isaiah 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? With garments of glowing colors from Bozrah. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. This is the angel speaking. Who is this one who's come? Cyril of Alexandria. His appearance was altogether strange and foreign to the powers above. Meaning, his appearance was, was strange to the angels. They were astonished at seeing him come up and said, Who is this who comes from Edom? Now say this here. Say with me here. He says, Edom can be translated either of wheat or of the earth. Who is this one who comes from the earth, they're saying? Then they're asking, the crimson garments, why why are your clothes red? And the crimson garments means that his clothes were redded from flesh, or rather, from blood. He is glorious in his apparel. The heavenly power, strong and wise and filled with heavenly glory, were looking upon Christ, even in the flesh, as a mighty one, thoroughly invincible, who manifests his divinity as well as humanity to them. When the angels asked, who is this one that comes from the earth? Why is his clothes red? What does Christ answer? It is I, the one who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. On seeing him, the angels called out, which Isaiah says, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. What does Christ reply to that? Why is your apparel red then? He says in verse 3, I have trodden the wine alone. And from the peoples there was no one with me. Which is another way of saying, they're asking, Why is your, why is your, why is your garments red? Christ says to the angels, Because I have trampled down my enemies. I have defeated all of my enemies. This interpretation of Isaiah 63 helps us interpret other verses in the Bible that speaks of angels, but more specifically, verses like 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Who He who was revealed in this flesh was vindicated righteous by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up the glory. That word seen by the angel saints in 1 Timothy 3.16 does not mean you know, the angels saw Christ in his earthly ministry. Rather, they saw him when he ascended into heaven. They're seeing the risen, ascended Christ and they're saying to themselves, who is this one? Who is this one? And Christ says, it is I. So then Christ as man then illuminates the very things that they long to look at. 
They long to know the mysteries of salvation. You know, in angels, there's a hierarchy. Not, 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 um, not horizontally, but vertically. You have lower angels and then you have higher angels. And what, and what, what the father of the church said, interpreting Isaiah 63, is that Jesus Christ teaches the higher angels and then the higher angels then teach the lower angels. Just, I was mind blown by this interpretation. So Christ then, what he does in his life, death, and resurrection, he illuminates the angels' knowledge of himself. Illuminates the angels' knowledge of himself. He heightens their knowledge. The second way Christ's redemptive work touches the angels is that he, he increases their joy. Christ increases their joy. Saints, you increase the angels' joy. But check this out. Holy angels enjoy the blessed vision of God. They enjoy God and all that he is. However, there is another joy that the angels can receive. Yes, they enjoy the vision of God, but there's another joy that they can receive because of Christ's redemptive work. Luke 15.10 In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy. Wait a minute. So when you were saved, whenever you were saved, there was joy in heaven. The angels have joy over one sinner repenting. What this verse tells us, saints, is that Christ has influence on the joy of angels. How does Christ have influence on the joy of angels? Because it is only by Christ that one is saved. So then the angels then are dependent upon Christ to send his grace in order for one to be saved. All who are saved are given the grace of Christ in order to believe. And the angels are dependent upon Jesus Christ. As one theologian says, this angelic joy is all more intensive because the salvation of the just is at the same time a reconciliation between the world of men and the world of angels. In other words, saints, angels with regard to their ministry, and angels have a ministry, right? They are servants of God that that do the will of God, that aid to God in, in the salvation of men. So they have a ministry, right? They have a ministry. But with regard to their ministry here on earth, they're travelers, they're, 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 they're wayfarers with regard to their ministry. There's still an ongoing work. Just as in Christ we say his work is finished, but yet his ongoing because the, all the elect have not yet been gathered. Likewise with the angels. The angels right now have an ongoing work to do. And with that respect, their ministry is incomplete. The fullness of joy with regard to the ministry is incomplete. Why? Because all the elect have not yet come. And so they depend upon Jesus Christ. They depend upon the ministry of Jesus Christ. This, saints, is the harmony that Paul is speaking of between heaven and earth. That when one man repents, there is, there is closer and closer and closer a unification between heaven and earth. Where we are, we are aiding <laughs> to the joy and the ministry of angels. And they are dependent upon Christ's work in order for them to have the fullness 
of joy and glory. But also, saints, heavenly doesn't just mean angels. When, when, when Paul says he's reconciled things on heaven and earth, it's not just angels, elect angels, but rather also demons as well. Everything's being reconciled in Christ. The elect angels are being reconciled with respect to knowledge, with respect to joy, with respect to this, this, this unity, right? Because, you know, when you sinned against God, you, you, God was not the only one, loosely speaking, mad at you. The angels were as well. The angels were also might mad at you. And so when one repents, it does make sense that there's joy there. But also, saints, Christ's cross work affects demons. It affects those angels who have fallen. How? Does it mean that demons will be saved? No, it means that demons will receive what they deserve. That things being reconciled in Christ means that Satan and his demons will receive their just judgment. Everything is going to be made peaceful. Every single thing in this universe will be made peaceful, saints. As it was said this morning from Pastor Antonio, Babylon will fall. Satan will be defeated. His holy angels will receive their just punishment. Let me take it a step further, since Pastor Antonio got a little bit cultural. Let me get a little cultural now. Abortion will be outlawed one day. Pornography will be banned one day. Every single device that Satan has used will be wiped away. Every single thing, the error of Satan's deception, as said, was said this morning, will one day be destroyed. And in that destruction, we see then the reconciliation of things in heaven and things on earth in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to make everything right. Every single thing he's going to make right. You're going to get your just reward. The angel is going to receive the fullness of joy. And Satan and his demons are going to receive what they so rightly deserve. Now, lastly, let's consider the reconciliation of things on earth. Much of this... <clears throat> will be saved for when Pastor Antonio goes in further into Revelation 21. But just to give us a little preview, when we consider St. Paul's words that things on earth will be reconciled to him, we're going to think, well, sure, only humans. Humans are being reconciled to God. That is right. But saints of God, <coughs> Paul doesn't mean just humans. He doesn't, he doesn't say that things on earth will be reconciled to God only with respect to humans. But rather, Paul has the whole world in mind. He has the whole world in mind. Meaning that Christ's cross work affects not just you, human being, but the very ground that you step on, the very sky that you see, the very, the very seas and, 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 and rivers and lakes that you look at. Every single inch of this creation will be renewed in Jesus Christ. Every single inch will be remade after the exemplar, Jesus Christ. 
The great question that we are left with, saints, is this. After that we, after man is redeemed, creation is saying, oh, what about me? Creation is saying, well, what about me? Will God abandon the creation that He once called good? Will He abandon such creation? Paul says in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation groans and sufferings, suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. That there is a groaning that creation has, saints. And saints of God, the great answer that God gives to us in His Word is simply this. That one day there's going to be a new earth. That all things are going to be remade, renewed, in Jesus Christ. That thorns and thistles will turn to green pastures. I mean, isn't that, isn't that amazing? What it tells me, saints, is this. That God has an answer for the ultimate problem of evil. That God is going to deal with evil and suffering. He's going to deal with Earthquakes one day. He's going to deal with, with lightning bolts and he's going to deal with a hundred pound hell. He's, that's going to be dealt with one day. One day, everything is going to be made right. Every single thing. And it's all centered in Jesus Christ. God, saints, has an answer to Adam's, what Adam did. God has an answer to Satan's deception. And it's found in none other than Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is telling us, saints. The message of Colossians 1.20 is simply this. You have a bright, bright future ahead of you. Every, every square inch is going to be remade in Jesus Christ. Whether things on earth, Pastor Antonio will deal with animals, I'm sure. And things, I had a conversation with him saying, I don't know what to do with the animals. And things in heaven. Elect angels, non-elect angels are going to be renewed, are going to receive their fullness of joy, saints. We long to look for that day. Until then, let us stay awake. Let us continue to stay awake and look to Christ. Let's pray.